just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not after you. True. So... How much paranoia is the appropriate amount of paranoia? I think that's really the question that we're asking. And isn't that the question we're always asking? This is only a test. This is only a test. This is only a test. Voluntary cooperation. Hello and welcome to the Uncover Up. I'm one of your co-hosts, Lee Kunla, and with me, as always, is Nathan Radke. Hey, Nathan. Yeah, maybe I'm with you, or, oh. and I'm just putting this out there, maybe I'm actually some kind of blue-skinned zombie alien who is impersonating a person who you think is Nathan. How would I know the difference? If this is the first episode that people are listening to, <laughs> let's, let's explain what's happening here. A few uh, months ago... You and I went on a friend's podcast, the brilliant Dr. Shelley Lesher. Whose podcast, My Nuclear Life, anybody who likes this podcast, they will also like that podcast. It's good stuff. And we did, I think, three episodes in which we dove into films about nuclear war and the Cold War and nuclear annihilation. And and it was a lot more fun than I'm making it sound. (laughs) But one of the things that that reminded me is... The importance of film to theory. Okay. In a bunch of ways. One is that you can use films to sort of hide theory in like a Trojan horse. Okay. Like if there's some sort of theory that you want to get across to the audience, you could put it in like a a sci-fi movie and then kind of sneak it in like sugarcoating medicine. Yeah. And I think as teachers, we've also discovered that narrative is more compelling than just dry facts. So you can, you can provide a bunch of evidence or facts, but if you can put them within the context of a story, they are so much more compelling, believable, understandable, relatable. And I think that is part of the power of movies to transmit interesting ideas in a narrative way. Yeah, we remember stories and stories affect us. The other thing is that I think a lot of the way that we understand reality in the modern age comes from film. Yeah. If you if you try to imagine a place you've never been, there's a good chance what you're actually imagining is how that's been represented in movies and TV. Right, right, right. So we have this really complicated relationship with movies and television. It, it actually, it makes sense to occasionally dip into that world. Yeah. And we've done this once before when we talked about our favorite conspiracy movies. But today we, we're doing a deep dive on one specific movie. And we're doing it for both of the reasons we've just explained. One, it's a great way of getting theory across and talking about theory. And two, this is an extremely influential film, which I think has changed the way that a lot of people have seen their reality. When I was re-watching it, it felt as though it really articulated the way a lot of conspiratorial fantasies operate. Sort of how we imagine a conspiracy on a grand scale would actually turn out. And I think it really, it speaks to a lot of the movements that we're seeing today. I was reminded of QAnon, uh, certainly uh, David Icke's The Lizard People, you know, with theories of the Illuminati. It's all in this film. Yeah, like this this film, oh. What film? (laughs) This film, which eventually we'll explain what the name of it is, it kind of provides the... It provides the mold. It provides the pattern through which we can kind of look at a bunch of different conspiracy theories which follow a similar pattern to this film. And this film, of course, is called... Well, they know because it's in the title of the... Of course it is. So here it is again. John Carpenter's They They Live. live. Starring not an actor. Right. But instead starring... A wrestler. the, The Canadian wrestler Rowdy Roddy Piper. Also starring Keith David and Meg Foster. Keith David, excellent actor, has been in a bunch of John Carpenter films, including The Thing. Meg Foster, you might not recognize her name, but you would know her by her eyeballs. I was going to say, her eyes are really striking. Yeah, she's got very striking eyeballs. And they don't change over time. I, I googled her and and um, looked at some more recent pictures of her, and her eyes are just as striking as they were back in 1988 when this film was released. Yeah, they are icy. Yeah. And but can I, sorry to interrupt, Nathan, oh, go ahead. can I also say, if you haven't watched it, you should go watch it now. 
Yeah. It is available on YouTube. Yeah, for free. For free. So you you don't need to pay any money. You can stop the podcast, go watch the film, which is a classic in the conspiratorial genre. Maybe one of the modern classics that sort of start the genre again in the 80s. Go watch it and then come back and, and listen to us. Yeah, we'll eloquent. wait. We'll wait for We'll you. wait here while you go. <laughs> and okay, they probably watched it now. All right. So let's get into this film okay. and explain what happens in it, which I think will go some way of, of describing why we think this is such an important conspiratorial film. So the main character is named Nada. Johnny Nada. Already, that's important. Okay. Why is it important that his name is Nada? All right. So, the, okay, credit where credit's due. This comes from uh, film and cultural theorist slash critic Slavoj Žižek in his movie, uh, where, where he... Uh, looks at a bunch of different films and their meanings, and he talks about the subjectlessness. Is that a is that a comprehensible term? The how this subject of the film doesn't really have any subjectivity. He is null and void. He is kind of an empty canvas. So the Spanish for nothing or zero is nada, and this guy is Johnny Nothing, which actually reminded me a little bit of in the Odyssey. Is it where Odysseus stabs the Cyclops, uh, but says that his name is nobody? And so then later the next day, when uh, the Cyclops's friends ask him, "Who did this to you?" he has to say, "It was nobody." See, amazingly, we're only a couple <laughs> minutes into this discussion of this 1980s B movie. Yes, and already we've talked about Slavoj Žižek and Homer and Homer. Okay, it's a well, good that's start. The, the, exactly it's a strong start. Trojan um, horses, indeed. Ah. Now, just because you because you you introduced um, John Nada, he is also just in terms of this kind of subjectless subject. He is a worker, he's but an he everyman. He's but he is out of work. And what we're led to believe is that the reason he doesn't have a job, it isn't because of anything about him. That's right. There's the, something structural going on. There's yes. something going on in his society that's preventing him from getting a job. And it's it's interesting how John Carpenter, who is also the screenwriter for so he's the director but he 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 writes the screenplay for this make sure not to typecast john nada as you know potentially a socialist or maybe somebody on the far right so he's a guy who's just trying to get a job yeah. and he he actually says he believes in america and american values and that if you do hard work you're going to do fine so he shows up in L.A. like a drifter. He's yeah. hard up. He's looking for work. He tries at an unemployment office, and it's just no help to him at all. No. And she, like, kind of rolls her eyes. So this unemployment officer, worker, person rolls her eyes when he gives this litany of structural problems that have led to him being out of work. And, you know, it's just like, whatever. I've heard it all before. But he perseveres. Yeah, he, he seems, like, he seems optimistic, he's friendly, he's yep. not surly. Exactly. But it's just, it's not working out for him. And as he's walking around, he passes a, a preacher in a park in front of a small crowd of listeners, who's saying, They have taken the hearts and minds of our leaders. They have recruited the rich and the powerful, and they have blinded us to the truth. Our human spirit is corrupted. Why do we worship greed? Because outside the limit of our sight, feeding off us, perched on top of us from birth to death, are our owners. Our owners. They have us. They control us. They are our masters. Wake up. They're all about you, all around you. And at this point, cops show up and take the man away. Right. And so we got a nice bit of setup here. Yeah. Like that's basically the thesis for this film right. is that what that preacher says is 100% accurate. Then he shows up uh, after walking around this economically depressed city, passing people with dazed expressions, staring blankly at television sets, blaring from behind store windows. And then he ends up at the construction crew. Yeah. So he does get onto the construction crew and he makes friends in like the weirdest way possible with another construction worker named Frank. It is weird because Frank reaches out to try and help him. So Frank is played by Keith David. 
and he sort of sees this new guy and offers him, you know, a hand in a way by saying, hey, you know, do you need a place to sleep? I know basically a homeless shelter where you can stay. And um, Roddy Piper brushes him off and is like, forget it. And but then weirdly follows him, like stalks him for the next five minutes of the movie, at which point Frank is is Keith David's character's name stops like, why are you following me? I don't like it when people follow me. And, and and Roddy Piper's like, well, I don't join anybody unless I know where they're going. It's, I mean, this is kind of like this. And then there's this moment where we're like, ha ha, and yeah. they like clap hands. And it's like, all right, we're good friends now. It's, 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 it's toxic male masculinity a la 1988. Yeah, and it, it's sort of <laughs> like, how does, how do men make friends? Right, yeah. <laughs> So they they have they have hooked up now as friends and they're walking around together and Frank takes them to this like shanty town. Yeah. It's like something out of the 1930s depression. Yeah. It's like something out of like the grapes of wrath. Yeah. And so clearly there are a bunch of of working poor people. Yeah. who cannot afford rent, who can't afford to live anywhere else and so they're in this great big tent city. Yeah. out in the middle of nowhere. And they're friendly with each other. They're polite to each other. This is not the kind of, you know, shantytown run by criminals and gangsters. There's a kind of mythology of the good working class American person, you know, that left to their own devices, they're very decent. They say please and thank you. They clean up after themselves. They wait in line. You know, they don't expect handouts. Right, they want just honest pay for honest work. Exactly. And that's what these people are here for. Although it seems like the honest work they're doing is far outstripping the honest pay that they're receiving. Right, yes. The only thing that doesn't look like it's from the 1930s is that there were television sets there. Like, even though it's outdoors, there's just these sort of tents with television sets. Yeah. And they're blaring all of the time, and a couple of the shantytown residents are watching some pointless program. And the signal gets interrupted with some static. The Yeah. And then what looks like a, like a bearded professor comes on and warns the viewers that they have been placed into an artificial state of reality in a sleep-like state. Uh-huh. So that's twice now we've had warnings from a character about how you're asleep and you got to wake up. Yeah. Now that is a classic story. Yeah. And uh, for modern day listeners, they're probably thinking, oh, this reminds me of a different film, a later film. Like, what classic film is this basically very similar to? The Matrix. Yeah, this is the story of The Matrix. Because, I mean, in the odd chance that anybody hasn't seen the first Matrix, what's the basic idea? You're living in a fantasy world. In this case, it's uh, sort of a hyper-real version of VR, and you don't know you're in it. And then the, the, the process of the movie is to try and wake you up and wake others up to the horrors of what's actually real, which is not this kind of consumer utopia that the Matrix is fashioning for the sleeping people in it, but this dystopian post, I don't know, environmental collapse kind of place where Earth is almost uninhabitable and, yeah, the machines are these overlords. Yeah, it's this classic story where this sort of comfortable world that you're in is an illusion. And that the people are actually sleeple. Right. Trademark Nathan Radke. <laughs> I like that better than sheeple. Yeah. And if you can wake them up, they can see the reality, and then the world that they had previously believed basically falls away right. and exposes itself as an illusion. Right. The Matrix obviously came after They Live, but They Live wasn't the first time the story was told. I, I would argue that the first time in the Western canon that this story gets told is thousands of years earlier. Okay. With Plato's Allegory of the Cave. Oh, oh that's, a, that's an interesting shout out. And we should look at that. I was also thinking about a bunch of religious traditions also within Christianity, but beyond that as well, that have that as their basic premise. You yeah. are living in an illusory world, maybe one generated by the devil. And the project is to get into a kind of apprehension of reality. See, I would argue on this podcast episode about this 1980s B-movie, that those branches of Christianity are actually Neoplatonist. Yes, uh, very well done. Yeah, I would agree with that. So let's then look at the archetypal version of this narrative, which is 
the allegory known as the allegory of the cave, which you would find in a book called Plato's Republic by the famous philosopher Plato, just one name. You know you've made it like in Cher. philosophy. Yes, Cher, Zizek, and Plato. You know you've made it when it's just one name. So anyway, or Rihanna. <laughs> so, what, what's that cave about? So here's how the here's how the cave works. Now, bear in mind this story is being told as as an allegory. It's not supposed to be a thing that really happened. Right. So here's the story. It goes like this. Imagine a cave. There's a bunch of people and they are sitting on benches and they're all facing the same direction facing the wall, an inside wall of the cave. And on that wall that they're all facing, they watch flickering shadows. Now, this is all anybody knows of reality, and so people think that this is all there is to reality. Because in the story, they were born there. Yeah, even though that doesn't really make that any sense. That doesn't make any sense. How do they? How were they born? Where do they go to the washroom? How does that, it doesn't we, matter. We are going to ignore all of that. Yep. I mean, clearly they're sitting on toilets, but that's not made explicit in the story. But, no. you know, sometimes you need a little creative additive to make it, this story make sense. But anyway, we're not belaboring that. But the idea is they're born here. They're chained in such a way that they can't even see each other. So and, they you, don't, and they don't know they were chained because they've always been chained. Right. So you, if you imagine maybe some kind of head shackle that would prevent you from, from looking side to side, you're, you're only able to look straight ahead. At and, these flickering shadows. Exactly. And what you're looking at is the back of a cave, the wall of a cave, which has these shadows on it. Yeah. And then one day somebody comes into the cave and unshackles somebody. Right. And pulls them up and spins them around. Yeah. And so then for the first time in this society's history, somebody looks behind them and they're like, oh, wait, that light that I thought was coming from the cave wall was actually reflected light. There was a fire behind us. Right. And the fire is brighter than the flickering reflection on the wall. Therefore, the, the, the fire is truer. It's more real. Sure. And in front of that fire are like people with puppets on sticks. And they're just, they're just waving these puppets around. And the person's like, oh, wow, not only was the light just a, a reflection of a fire behind me, but those shadows that I thought were reality were just these bad copies. Right. They were images. Now, I want to pause here because this is going to come, become relevant later, that that experience of being unshackled and turned around, if we're going to just go with this thought experiment, that would be an extremely painful experience. Yeah, because so, everything you thought was real was just this illusion. Well, I was even thinking just physically painful. Like if you are, I mean, just think about, you know, international travel and you've been sitting in your airplane seat in economy class for the last eight hours and now you try and get up. Okay, I'm in my 40s. That, that, that already hurts, right? But you've been sitting here your whole life and somebody forces you to get up. Imagine being in a dark movie theater and then coming out into the light that would hurt your eyes. It would hurt your eyes to see that kind of light. And it'd for be the scary. First time. And it would be scary as all heck. And it's about to hurt more. Yeah. And be even scarier. That's because that's what philosophy is all about. Yeah. Hurting and being scared. <laughs> so the person sees the light and this is already kind of alarming. But then they see something else is that past the fire, there's an even brighter light off in the distance. Yeah. And so they crawl out of the cave, and now they're standing out in the world under the sun. Right. And now their their eyes are are burning. It, it's terrifying. They're being bombarded with all these new sensations. We are, for the first time, seeing real things, as opposed to recognizing that the shadows were just, you know, shadows being caused by weird images being held in front of a fire. Those images, though, are themselves also not really real in the way that a bird is really real like a cutout of a bird that i staple on the stick is not the same thing as a bird and so you've moved from the apprehension of apparent reality two times over you thought you had reality when you were chained looking at the back of the cave then you look at the fire and you're like aha this I, is real i got the really real now but no, it turns out there is yet a more real once you escape the cave entirely. But in this story, now you've you've actually hit reality. Yeah, you've actually hit reality. So we got a we got a colleague of ours who we love dearly, whose whose retort to this whole Plato's cave thing is, how do you know you're out of the cave? But And he's right. 
But we're going to... That's not how the story works. We're going to pause. Exactly. We're going to just bracket that worry for a moment and say, let's just go with the author's account and say, okay, we have actually escaped the cave. And now we really are in reality. We were living in a world of illusion and we've had our eyes opened and it was difficult and it was painful. But now we actually see how the world is rather than looking at a shadow of a bird or looking at the puppet of the bird that's causing the shadow, yeah. now an actual bird flies by, and you're like, ooh, this is real. Quack. So the person walks around in the outdoors for a while, and they, their eyes get used to it eventually, and then they're seeing reality for the first time, and they think, oof, I've got to go back in the cave and warn everybody. Yeah, how does that go? goes exactly as well as you would think. <laughs> so the person goes back into the cave and starts saying, oh, all of the things that you thought were real were fictions, they're illusions, they're bad copies, there's a much more real world than this, we've been fooled our whole lives. But all of these comfortable people, this person just seems like a madman. Yeah. And so the people nearest to him grab him and beat him to death. Right. Because that's what you do with people who are trying to drag you out of your comfortable reality, right? You end up killing them. I mean, it might not be you personally, but your society wants to get rid of them. Maybe you want to get rid of them. It's not a nice thing, but... We, I, I, we prefer our comfortable illusions exactly. to uncomfortable reality. Exactly. I mean, that's why I watch TV to begin with. But I want to just pause again and just note the fact that when that person goes back from, their, from the actual experience of the really real out there in the world and goes back into the cave... They're now no good anymore at doing cave things. Yeah, because so, they, they can't tell the difference between shadows. Their eyes have become accustomed to the sun. Exactly. So now all the people who spend their day looking at the shadows and divining how this one is different from that and what that means, this person who's come in from reality can't even do that anymore. Their eyes are no longer accustomed to this. And so they appear to all those people in the cave as especially stupid as though this experience of going out and quote-unquote seeing the real has actually made you quite dumb and, and not good at the things you should be good at. So just more proof for those people in the cave that you shouldn't bother with this person to begin with. Yeah. To people who are living in illusions, somebody with the truth appears to be a fool. Exactly. And I would like to point out that we're only about eight minutes into this film. <laughs> Is this going to be a three-parter? Maybe. So... Nada is now, he's got a job, he's living in the shanty town. We clearly, at this point in the film, we've got all these sort of warnings from people that say, hey, things aren't as they seem, yeah. there's something going on. And Nada sees that there's some kind of secret meeting happening at the rundown church beside the shanty town, and he sneaks in. And he sees that the man from the TV and the preacher he saw earlier are part of some kind of weird resistance group, and they're working with some kind of strange technology. Now, that night... Police come and raid the church and the shantytown and viciously beat the hacker and the preacher. So the next day, Nada returns to the ruins of the church and discovers a box of sunglasses, which he takes with him. This is really the crux of the film. Yeah, this is the film's about to get going now. This is now it's now it starts. This is like him getting the sunglasses. It's like it's like Neo taking the red pill. Right. Or it's like the person in the cave being unchained. Right. So Nata stashes the box and takes one pair with him, which he puts on as he wanders around downtown L.A. And this is the moment where this film, which up until now had been like a typical 1980s B-movie, turns into what I consider to be a straight-up classic. Yeah. So he puts the sunglasses on. The world goes monochromatic black and white. And what happens to all of the slick billboards, all the advertisements, all the magazines, all of the everything? What happens to all of the images that he's surrounded by when he puts on the sunglasses? Suddenly, he discovers their true message, and they are replaced. So all the glitzy advertising is replaced by its actual intended message. And those are things like obey authority, marry and reproduce, stay asleep, conform, stop thinking. It's mostly around the idea of obey and sleeping. Yeah, no independent thought. Do not question authority. Yeah. I mean, yeah, uh, one of the examples that you really like is that there's like a billboard for like a Hawaiian vacation that shows a typical 1980s woman in a bikini all stretched out. Yeah. But when he puts on the sunglasses, what does the billboard actually say? It says marry and reproduce. Yeah. And it's brilliant because there is, again, a sense in which that 
is really the message of that billboard, you know? It's that's what is the Caribbean prepackaged holiday for a young couple? If not, let's solidify this reproducing unit and get some more. Let's make some more consumers. Exactly. Workers and consumers. Exactly. And then Nata looks down because he has paper money in his hand. And when he looks down at the paper money, the bills are all blank, except for the words, this This is is your your God. God. (laughs) And it's filmed brilliantly. It looks great. Yeah. Uh, The artistic direction, everything about this scene is magnificent. Yeah. If you only watch 10 minutes of this film, and I would argue that you only need to watch 10 minutes of this film. Those are the 10 minutes. Yeah, because that's basically it, right? Now it's just him having to cope with this. But... I think that also speaks to a lot of the conspiratorial notions today is that it works exactly like this, is that there is an overt message and then there's the real message underneath and the real message underneath is stuff like don't question authority, don't think for yourself, obey, consume, shut up. Yeah. And what's even more alarming is that it isn't just the magazine covers and the and the billboards and the money that's changed some of the humans have also become very, very different when you look at them through the glasses. Because rather than being human beings, they look like blue-skinned, bug-eyed, zombie-looking aliens. Yeah, and it's an interesting choice for how to make your aliens look. Because if you think about aliens in, I don't know, aliens, they're really alien. I'm sorry I'm using that word too often, but uh, the aliens in the film Alien You've are, said alien enough now that the word means nothing to right, me. Right. It's, 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 but what they are, these people are very human-like. They look like zombies. Yeah. And, like and blue zombies. Exactly. And John Carpenter said explicitly they are meant to look like corrupted humans, decaying humans. So, and that is what they look like. They look sort of like and I'm sorry for, this is a pretty gross image, but if you think about a human body in week two of de- decay after death, that's about, I think, what I would imagine them to look like. Yeah, their lips have retracted, so their teeth are always showing. Yeah. Their eyelids have withered, so their eyeballs look huge and bulging. Their skin doesn't really, it's not one color. No, it's sort of falling off in parts. Yeah, and it's mottled and yuck. Yeah, but they've got great hair. And something that I want to point out at this at this moment in the film that's going to continue throughout the entire film, all of the people that he sees who are actually these zombie aliens, they're all in business suits. Yeah. Like the moment it happens, there's an angry business guy who's yelling at at the uh, proprietor of a magazine shop. Yeah. The business guy is one of these zombie aliens. But the, the guy who's just running the magazine shop is just a guy running a magazine shop. So the aliens are all wealthy business people. Uh, can we talk about Reaganism now or do we save that? Let's talk about it right now. Okay. So this was quite intentional from uh, John Carpenter, who wanted to make a, a, a critical film about or criticism of 1980s consumerism, Reaganism, neoliberalism, a kind of what he sees as a a retreat of traditional American values, of family, of non-consumer values, friendship, of the meaning of life, personal spirituality, all that kind of stuff, which was replaced in the 80s very overtly with the meaning of life is consumer-based pleasure. And the moment this happens is at the end of the 70s, throughout the 70s, and and especially towards the end of the 70s, you have a malaise that is set into the American economy. Well, you've had a recession. You've had the oil crisis. Yeah. And what's weird is you have both rising inflation and rising unemployment, which up until that time, you only usually had one or the other. You also have that today as we record this podcast yeah, yeah. in it's, February of 2022. It's We were talking before we went on air how today seems a lot like 50 or 100 years ago in, in a lot of respects. But Not in good ways. Then you had Jimmy Carter. And this is a really famous speech. Jimmy Carter gets on the airwaves and says, look, there's a problem in America. It is a crisis of confidence 
It is a crisis that strikes at the very heart and soul and spirit of our national will. We can see this crisis in the growing doubt about the meaning of our own lives and in the loss of a unity of purpose for our nation. The erosion of our confidence in the future is threatening to destroy the social and the political fabric of America. There's rampant consumerism. We're kind of missing the point. There's an energy crisis. There's, you know, and he is... The response by, and it's hard to say by America, because there'll be different people who responded differently. And certainly John Carpenter was like, yeah, of course, he's totally right. But there was a Reagan reaction to this, which which essentially was like, no, everything's fine if we just go shopping. Yeah. And that's what a lot of people did. And, you know, I do it sometimes. If I'm feeling crummy, I'll go buy myself something, retail sure. therapy, and it kind of works. Right? Kind of makes you feel better about life. But by the time you get to the late 80s, there are people who are grappling with this new direction in American political and social life, this kind of rampant consumerism as the be-all and end-all to everything that is worth doing. And this, this film is a criticism of that. And not only that, but a key aspect of Reaganomics was trickle-down. The yeah. idea is that if you could just make the rich people in your society richer, yeah. everyone would ben benefit somehow because the rich people would like trickle money down on everyone. So it's it's an easy idea to make fun of. And I, in my personal life, do make fun of it. But just to give it its due, the idea was, well, rich people are the ones who, you know, invest in factories, who, I don't know, are, are invest in new products. And they are, at the end of the day, the ones who will generate jobs. So if you give them more opportunity to make more money, what they're going to do is take some of that money and reinvest it into the economy. And thereby, and here was another metaphor that they used, um, the tide raises all boats, no, small and large. But, now, what, but then what actually happened yeah, was of course. they just they, they sunk it into the stock market and they sunk it into like offshore accounts. Yeah, and they kept a lot of it. And, then and they very bought, little got trickled down. Exactly. And then they bought islands for themselves. Yeah, of course. So by the end of the 80s, you had an increased gulf between the very wealthy of your society yeah. and the working people. Yeah. At the same time, uh, Reagan was clamping down on things like unions. Right. Uh, one of the first things he did was fire all of the air traffic controllers when they went on strike. Yeah. And so the unions were sort of sabotaged in that way. And so you started to see that it was becoming harder and harder to be a working person in modern America. And so now we've covered supply-side economics. We've talked about ancient uh, Greek mythology. So I think we're well into this film at this point. Right. I think we're at 11 minutes now. Yep. Or so. so Nada is looking at all of this, and he's, he's sort of freaking out. He goes into a, a shop, and he, again, he's looking at all the products, and all the products just say, buy, 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 consume, consume, consume on them. And he's looking at one woman in particular, and he's sort of laughing at her because she is this hideous blue uh, zombie alien. I think he says that she looked like she had been dipped in cheese dip in 1957. Yeah. Some of the lines in this Some of the lines next are... <laughs> level. But when this alien woman realizes that he can see her for what she is... You see, I take these glasses off. She looks like a regular person, doesn't she, huh? Put them back on from Maldehyde face. That's what That's we got. That's enough out of you. She talks into her wrist communicator and she says, I've got one that can see. And so then some cops show up who were also aliens and they confront Nada and there's a fight. Nada kills both of them. So you bastards die just like me. And then he grabs the cop's shotgun and flees into a bank where many of the suits inside are filled with more of the zombie aliens. And it's at this point when Rowdy Roddy Piper, as John Nada, utters, I think, the best line in movie history. <laughs> I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Oh, it's just you know it's there's something 1980s badass about that that line so now there's a scene 
that I think hits us differently now from where we are than when this came at 1988. Because there's there's a shootout in the bank and, and Nada opens fire on a bunch of the people in the bank. Yeah. It seems a bit indiscriminate. Yeah. So I'm not sure. I didn't go back and check that all the victims were in fact the blue aliens and not humans. But he seems like mad. And uh, as he says, he's looking to kick some ass now. Yeah, he's all out of bubblegum. And the thing that I think makes it hit different for us where we are in history is that we have seen a lot of mass shooting events. Yeah. And I think it's sort of uncomfortable to watch a film like this where somebody has only just recently awoken into this new world and is completely convinced that he is correct Yeah. and just starts opening fire in a crowded place. Which, and we were talking about this before we went on air, is a weird thing if you just pause to think about it. Now, John Carpenter said, look, it's an action film. It was mm-hmm. supposed to be an action film that made you think, and it does do that. And in as far as action films go, there's a lot of indiscriminate shooting. But if I'm going to take it very seriously in terms of the narrative, it's a weird thing to do. Why? When you discover that the world you have lived was an illusion and now you've discovered this sinister new reality, why is your first response to get armed to the teeth and shoot a bunch of people? It does not follow if you think about it. Although I have talked to people who have had experiences like this where they feel like they have seen the reality behind the illusion and they have armed themselves. I wonder, though, if that has to do to some extent... This is a tough thing to say, Uh but I wonder if that has to some extent to do with the fact that this is how this problem is always dealt with in cinema. Mm -hmm. Like it seems like a typically American cinematic response to I have been lied to, ergo, I will go shoot a bunch of strangers in revenge. Yeah, like if this was a French film, he would go and sit and he would smoke cigarettes. That's and right. He would, he would wistful want, exactly. And he would go, oh, but what does any of it mean? Exactly. He might take his own life. Yeah. In maybe. a French film. Yeah. Right. I don't know. Like it just there, and I don't like talking about things like the American character. No, or because of course there is no such thing. But in terms of American f- cinematic responses to crises. This seems to be one of the kind of go-to, quote-unquote, solutions that then also, as you say, is actually enacted historically, mm-hmm. which is really quite upsetting and equally, if not significantly more bizarre. Because again, you wonder, what does this school full of children have to do with your recognition that whatever, whatever, or this office building, or whoever ends up being the victim of the... Um, running amok. Mm -hmm. I guess what we're saying is, if you have an experience like this, don't just immediately run amok. Right. Or or maybe don't run amok at all. Uh, Ideally. Because, sorry to interrupt, Nathan, but I think for a lot of people who got into philosophy as a full-time job, like us, I think this was part of the selling job, was that that experience is quite amazing it's intoxicating it is intoxicating to go from this is how i thought the world was to i was wrong the world is actually quite different it's so intoxicating for me that this is what i chase now Mm -hmm. this is my this is my daily activity is to try and deconstruct things that i thought were true about the world and discover that they're not and never in that process have i wanted to resort to violence as a result of any of these discoveries No, what you do want to do is you want to share your experiences. Yes. So we'll come back to that idea. (laughs) So meantime, he's running amok. Nat is running amok. He flees to an underground parking garage. This part also kind of hits uncomfortably, I think. Okay. He carjacks a human woman named Holly and demands she take him to her place to hide. Right. Again. It's a bit awkward. Yeah, maybe, Nathan, you want to say why this one is awkward. Well, because there's like a real sense of implied violence. Now, I have to say that Nada is, other than pointing a gun at this this person, he isn't threatening towards her in any other way. No, but, but she doesn't but she recognize doesn't know. that, no. and I could understand her reading of it like that. Yeah, right. So the this is uh, Meg Foster, whose character's name with in, the eyeballs in the movie, yeah, is uh, Holly Thompson, and um, she is basically, I think, 
like preparing, like the character I'm saying, is basically preparing for some kind of sexual assault. Yeah. Like I am being taken to my house at gunpoint and bad things will now happen. Yeah. And, and, and that's she's an un, that's right an uncomfortable, to worry about That's an that. uncomfortable scene to watch play out. Yeah. And of course, that isn't what happens. Uh, she takes him back to her place. Uh, he tells her this story. He's like, listen, I've, I, I put these sunglasses on. I can see that advertisements are just saying obey and that a lot of these people are actually aliens. And she kind of humors him. Right. Which, again, follows. You think about if this actually went down in your life. You're like, well, I'm dealing with somebody who's in a mental health crisis right now. I'm just going to... Got to go along with it. Right? Yeah. Until the point where uh, he walks near a window and then she pushes him out of the window and he falls like a cartoonishly long amount of time and crashes to the ground. And so then he is hiding in an alley all night, but he goes back to his construction site to find his friend Frank from the beginning of the film. And Nada brings Frank to the alley where he stashed the sunglasses and, he, and Nada asks Frank to put on the sunglasses. And, oh boy, we then have a fight scene that lasts for six minutes, which is an awfully long time in a film. Yeah. This fight scene goes on forever. And then, when you think it's over... It, it keeps it going. It just keeps going. It's... It's quite a watch. However, it took three days to shoot. Yeah, it takes three days to watch. <laughs> Uppercut! Question. Yes. Why do we have this great big fight scene in this film? Why don't you give us the ideological reason? Okay. And then I'll give us a simpler reason. Oh, okay. What does it, what does it represent? What does right. this fight scene mean? Right. So it is bizarre. It, is, it does require an explanation. I mean, with... Because with, they're friends. And it's also about... Nada wants Frank to put on the sunglasses. It's a pretty small ask. Which you could be like, fine. I w-, Like if, if the alternative was put on the sunglasses or I will punch you in the face multiple times, I will put on the sunglasses just to humor you even though I think you're wrong and I will not see anything different. So it, re- it seems to require an explanation. Everybody who sees the film you know, notes that there is this incredibly long, ongoing fight and scene. Brutal. Ju- it's brutal. It just never comes to an end, and it's and it's bizarre because it has no real purpose, except, of course, if you reflect back on the cave and the experience of unshackling somebody and trying to turn them towards the fire. They would resist this. They don't want this. They don't want you to pull them out of their comfortable reality in which they understand what's going on and find it extremely threatening and dangerous for somebody to challenge those notions. And so the reading that most people give of this fight scene is that in some way the character Frank, not his construction worker buddy, has intuited at maybe an unconscious level that putting on these sunglasses will disrupt his understanding of reality and resists it tooth and nail and it's funny because this is what we nathan and i in our day jobs this is actually our job this is what we do we are roddy roddy piper who go into the classroom and in a metaphorical sense wrestle with our students to put on these bloody glasses and all we ever get is just like three hours of resistance until we finally go home. Hey, that's not what I get. My students, <laughs> right, right. My students listen to me. Right, they all put them on. Mine are like, sir, you're an idiot and I'm not wearing those glasses. Uppercut! Yeah, and so it, it so does... So wait, it, it what's, a... what's the non-fancy interpretation of this? Sorry to interrupt. Oh, just because you have a wrestler in your film, you might oh, as well yes. have a scene where he's wrestling. <laughs> that's true, that's true. I think that's got to be part of it, too. Yeah, I, I think that it might even be more likely. But it does work as such a great metaphor for the power of ideology. That's like a mic drop right there. Yeah. Like we could just go home now. Yeah. <laughs> but I think what instead of mic dropping, because we have these nice expensive mics, yeah, okay. you're going to have to explain, what do I mean by ideology? Yeah, that's not an easy thing to explain. And I maybe have to, mm, I'm going to have to be a bit roundabout with this. There's basically two ways of talking about ideology. And I, I want to say that one is, is more correct than the other. 
the wrong way to talk about ideology is the way I think that most of us think about it, which is ideology is an, a, an unnecessary surplus to our experience of reality. It confuses reality. It adds extra stuff that's not actually out there. So if you think about somebody who is fully invested in an ideology that you yourself think is complete bogus, and I don't know what that is, maybe a kind of militant communist or a fundamentalist Christian or I don't know what. Basically any belief system you disagree with. Any, but the other person's got to be like fully into it, mm -hmm. right? Then I think there's this... Uh, somewhat erroneous concept of ideology makes a lot of sense because there you see somebody much like you but who is apprehending the world in a completely different way because they are wedded to a set of theories that when they get all this kind of input from the world spits out these very bizarre interpretations of what's going on and so the goal from this perspective is to do away with ideology right funnily actually the way I often talk about this in class is, you know, you've got like ideology is like rose-colored glasses. And so what you got to do is you got to take off the glasses, unlike in the film, you got to take off the glasses to apprehend reality. Oh. So that I would say is the wrong way to think about ideology. Mm -hmm. The right way to think about ideology is we're all in it. We're all in it all the time. And A person can't be without ideology. No, you can go from one to another but all ideology is is part and parcel of our experience of reality. And what I I counter this notion, if I if I were to say in the old version or or the wrong version of ideology, ideology are rose-colored glasses that you could theoretically take off. This other version of ideology are your eyes themselves, that actually they are required in order for you to see as such. Right. And so ideology, while it does filter out certain things, uh, emphasize certain other things, is the condition for understanding the social world as such. No wonder that fight scene goes on for six minutes. <laughs> now, OK, so the, the, the question, though, is, you know, what's what's the ideology and how do we experience that it is ideology? And I think this is where. Roddy Piper wants you to have an experience of your ideology because what the glasses do is not as much show you that there is a real world underneath this fake world, but it, it, it brings you sort of face to face with your own experience of ideology, that everything is always mediated and in a sense, quote unquote, fake. What a movie. So, it's so great. It so really Nada is. gets Frank to put the glasses on, and then Frank's like, oh, yeah, right. I totally see what you mean now. Yeah. Because it's it's immediately clear. As right. soon as you put the glasses on, you're like, oh, yep, you're right. And so they get in touch with the resistance movement from the abandoned church, and they go to a meeting, and Holly's there. Holly's there. And she apologizes for Net to Nada for not believing him. But then almost immediately the cops show up. And what's interesting is that some of the cops are zombie aliens, and some of the cops are humans. And they just start shooting the place up. And right. almost everybody is killed. But Nada, Frank, and Holly escape with a stolen alien transportation device that, like, teleports them. And they teleport and find themselves in a secret underground facility filled with aliens and human collaborators. Right. The, the super elite. Yeah. So there are humans that aren't aliens, but they're working with the aliens. Right. Sellouts. So they're mistaken for human collaborators, and they're given a tour of the facility. And Nada learns that there's like this transmitting tower that puts out a signal that interferes with humans' ability to see the aliens as they really are. So after we got some 1980s-style action, they get to the tower. Holly turns out to have been a collaborator the whole time, and she kills Frank. And then Nada kills Holly. And then he gets gunned down by a police helicopter. But with his last breath, he, one, shoots a transmitter and destroys it. And two, flips the bird. Right. And that's almost <laughs> the end of the film. It's almost the end, but there's been no gratuitous sex scene. True, which right? is weird for the 1980s. It is so weird for the 1980s. I mean, in every film, even like family films, you've got to have like one gratuitous sex scene, which we got the whole movie without it. So I feel like they stuck it on at the end there. Yeah, because what happens is once that transmitter is destroyed, the aliens are exposed. Right. And so now all of a sudden there's a bunch of aliens out there in society and people can see them for what they are. Yeah. And it ends with a scene where there is a woman performing sexual congress. Yes. 
And the way Nathan puts it is 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 quite accurate because it, it does not seem very passionate. No. It's sort of perfunctory. Yeah, it's sort of, it's very 1980s. And then she looks down at the person who she is sexing with, and he says, what's wrong, baby? But it turns out that he is, in fact, a blue-skinned zombie alien. Yeah. And then, end of film. End of film. End of film. So, I mean, we've talked a lot about the theory, but I want to now switch at the end to the other part of the importance of film. One is, as we've seen, you can get a lot of theory into a movie. Yeah. Or you can get a lot of theory from a movie. Yeah. But also... Movies change the way we see reality. Mm. It's, it goes both ways. So what I've done is I've gone to YouTube where this film was posted. Okay. And I went to the YouTube comment section. Oh, dear. Which is something that I never recommend anybody do. But I think it's important. So listen to some of these comments. Okay. This is how my life is now. I am so far down the rabbit hole, it's not even funny. Keep on seeking the truth, everyone. It is out there. Hmm. What can you learn about conspiracy theories from that first one? It's tough because I could read it in a lot of different ways. I'm being generous. And I think, yeah, I mean, if you take it as John Carpenter had intended, which is a critique of consumer society, then it's like, yeah, that is my life, actually. I'm just like, you know, I'm not as working class as John Natta is, but I got to go to work for a living. I do my thing things don't work out <laughs> otherwise, you know, and that's my life. How do I make it? How do I make myself feel better? I'll go shop knowing all the while that in doing so I destroy the planet. I enslave myself and I got no choice. So yeah, but I could see other readings in that, right? I could see given, given the rise of QAnon, given the rise of the anti-vax movement, given the rise of a lot of, a lot of emotion. Reptilians, neo-Nazi movements. Right. Like all of these, like that sentence, we we don't have the content of how their life is exactly. like this. And of course, there have been, for example, uh, neo-Nazi movements who have appropriated this film and said, ah, this film is really about that. It's really about how people need to open their eyes and become Nazis. Right, right. Well, that's and, and that works with a lot of these types of movies where you have a metaphor of oppression but it's maybe not spelled out quite enough in the film who this is supposed to refer to. So you can, you know, switch it up. Maybe anybody can be the zombies. Exactly. Now, in the case of They Live, that's not true because not only is it very clear, I would say, in the film that the zombies are like capitalist yuppies. Right. But John Carpenter, when he found out that this film was being appropriated in this way, he came out fairly recently on a tweet okay. and said, no, no, this is about 1980s consumerism. Right. You're reading the wrong thing into my film. Right, right. Like he overtly said it. Right. Ah, this brings us... <laughs> to the death of the author again? Well, it brings us to that question about what is the role of the audience in interpreting a work of art? You know, like, does it matter? Or what is the role of the author? Does it matter what he thinks? Yeah. But anyway. Man, we've gotten into some theory in this episode. No okay. one's going to listen. I got some more comments. All right. They live. Fallen, featuring Denzel Washington, and Unsane. Those three movies summarized my current life situation and opened my eyes to understand the types of people I am dealing with and their evil agendas. Things are not as they appear. Evil surround us since we were born, but we couldn't perceive it until Almighty God decided to open our eyes. And when that moment arrives, they will know that you know who they are, then your end times persecution will begin. Okay, this was a question I wanted to ask during the um, the our narration of the film, does it matter that the glasses are found in a church? Yeah, I thought that was interesting as well. Um, but it's an abandoned church. It's not some kind of like fancy 1980s but, church. But that's because the doctrine has been left, you know, abandoned, like the good old Christian doctrine. Nobody listens to it anymore. I don't know. It's, no. It is telling that the truth is found in the church. Yeah, although it's also found in academia. Because one of the people is that professor. Okay. Okay. So we can all find heroes. In it. <laughs> okay. So this is a more biblical, this comment is a more biblical reading of it. Uh, okay. Now I got a two-parter. I only just started learning about subliminal messaging and propaganda about a week ago. I swear, if I'd seen this movie any earlier, I would have dismissed it as being dumb and nothing but fear-mongering. Shame on me, I know. But I'm learning. I have a question for my fellow viewers. 
how closely do you think this movie mirrors reality in terms of the amount of propaganda subliminal messaging we're exposed to, and also in terms of how much of a power imbalance there is in the world? Do you believe our reality is as bad as this film portrays, or worse? Bonus question, do you believe that humanity is being secretly ruled by aliens? Is that an actual possibility, or is that where you draw the line between fiction and reality? Uh-huh. Follow-up comment. Yeah. Those are excellent questions. John Carpenter was one of the club. You don't make it to the big leagues unless you're one of them. You can see he does the signs and symbols in photos. They always do. The movies are always a limited hangout. They give you some truth mixed with lies for plausible deniability. Lots of predictive programming as well. I think the world as it is portrayed in the movie in terms of the few controlling the many and people being traitors to their brothers and sisters for power and for fame. But I think the alien bit is fiction. The aliens have mostly been pushed by movies after all. That's just my theory. Cheers. <laughs> so we're getting some interesting dialogue here. Yeah. The first the first questioner, I mean, I like I like the kind of approach of asking questions in the process of learning. It's just that's that is tends good. to be a good idea. I think it's an interesting question about how does social control work? Because clearly Advertisement is kind of BS, right? And there is a subtext to it, be it that, you know, by the, this product will make you more sexually attractive or this product will make you have friends and be loved. Feel young. By, be young, drink Pepsi. Right? Where we all know that there is, this is manipulation to get me to buy some kind of pretty junky product. Like, look, if the product wasn't a piece of crap, you wouldn't need to advertise it to begin with, you know? I feel like the the initial gambit here is is one of grappling with how does power manipulate us? But then we retreat into, from that questioner's line of reasoning, we retreat into kind of overt and somewhat, now that we've tested them out and tried them, implausible approaches to uh, control, which is stuff like subliminal messaging, which doesn't really work. But you don't really need it either because there's more overt and obvious ways that we buy stuff. Yeah, I mean, we are being manipulated. Exactly. We are subject to propaganda. What, what's interesting is I think the moment at which it sort of teeters from like genuine questioning the propaganda that we're surrounded by into a kind of paranoia. Yeah. Like, what's that moment? Is it when aliens come in, in this particular argument? That's an int- that is a really interesting question. It, it reminds me of the reptilians we talked about before. It's like, we don't need reptilians to explain the corruption of this world. Right. Well, but on the other hand, I was also thinking, you know, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not after you. True. So... How much paranoia is the appropriate amount of paranoia? I think that's really the question that we're asking. And isn't that the question we're always asking? And the answer is some, some amount of paranoia. Well, I think there is value to being suspicious. I think there is value to being critical. Like John Carpenter's film is a critique of Reaganite consumerism and neoliberalism. Yeah. But, ah. It's a it's an open question. I really like that. What is the like what is the role of paranoia? I mean, I would of... argue that paranoia is an epistemological position. <laughs> which is which is to say, it's a it's it's like a frame of looking at the world yeah. where things become sinister. You're sinisterizing things. Okay. Which I think is a word I just invented. Is, does it ma- is it also somewhat narcissistic? Yeah, it's hard to be paranoid without being narcissistic, because if you think they're all after you, then you think that you are worth being after. Right. And that's what keeps me from being paranoid, is I'm not that important, and I take a lot of joy in that. Yeah. And it's also something that I tell myself now, if I'm in a social situation, rather than agonizing about all the stuff I said, I just think, nobody was listening to me anyway. No, but it's true. Like, nobody cares what you say. Yeah, and it's very relaxing. As far as the question of where does paranoia cross the line? I think the answer might be found in the final comment that, okay. I, that I took note of. Okay, okay. This one's much shorter. Okay. They die as easily like us. I love that info. Ha, huh. that is scary. One of the revelations in the film is that the aliens in the film die just the same way that regular folk die. Mm-hmm. And... Of course, then that sets up a lot of the kind of shooting sprees that uh, Johnny Natta goes on. They work because they are also 
you know, mortal. But then in light of that, that's a pretty scary comment. Yeah, because that person's talking about not the universe of the film, right? but the universe that we're all in. Right, right, right. And so maybe that is the moment when you get convinced enough to potentially kill. That's where it gets concerning. I think it's interesting in in the end that this 1980s B-movie starring Rowdy Roddy Piper, yeah, we have been able to get so much high-level political thought and philosophy out of it. And that's why it's a classic. That's why it's a classic. And also because he had come to kick ass and chew bubblegum. Chew bubblegum. He's all out of bubblegum. All out of bubblegum. 